You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Southside Baptist Church, located in Florence, South Carolina. We now have two services, a classic service at 8.30 and a modern service at 11 o'clock. For more up-to-date information, check us out at southsidenow.church. Amen. Let's give applause for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5. What's so special about Christmas? And in fact, what we're going to read is believed to have been a hymn that was sung in the early church, which is kind of uh, kind of neat. And uh, we'll start off in verse 5. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into your word, I pray that we are reminded That Jesus is Lord. Not just a Lord. Not just some Lord. But that he is Lord. And I pray that he is Lord of our life. And may we take into account what that really means. May we let your Holy Spirit um, deal with our hearts. And challenge our minds. To help us to live obedience to your commands. And to the will of your Spirit. We love you. Be with us this morning. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. It's amazing to me that an event that happened over 2,000 years ago still causes traffic jams. And it does. It causes traffic jams wherever you go. People are ready to buy. Now, people may have different reasons for celebrating Christmas. For some, it may be that they can't wait to get a present. You remember that as a kid? Couldn't wait to get a present. Oh, and it's about Jesus? Okay, that's, that's good. But the older you get, the more you realize it really is about Jesus. There's always someone who goes, but it's not Jesus' real birthday. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say when he was born. More than likely, he was born in the spring. But I'm just thankful that we have a day in which we celebrate his birth. That's really what it's about, that we get to celebrate the birth. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the light of the world, the Savior, that the day in which we celebrate his birth, being December 25th, that that is the day on earth that we have the least amount of light. Isn't that interesting? And In fact, after December 25th, up until, I think it's June or July, I don't remember my dates exactly on that, but you gain a minute of sunlight from there on out. And until then, we lose, from like July-ish till December 25th, we lose a minute of sunlight every single time. We celebrate on the darkest day on earth, the light of the world. And I'm just glad, man, that it is a time, even in our society, which is getting more sinful 
more wicked, celebrating the things which God clearly calls sin. And if you say anything about it, you're labeled a bigot or insane, which is very interesting. But, but God's word is clear about what is sin and what is not sin. And some want to argue it. But he's made it clear that there's a Savior and that we are sinners and that we need, we need a Savior. And so this event, this thing we called Christmas, has been the centerpiece of history. Even our calendar is dated from the reference point, reference point of Jesus Christ coming. When you write a check and you write down, um, you know, December um, 1st or 2nd or whatever in 2022, you're reminded that you were writing down 2022 A.D. A.D. Now, Jesus was born more than likely between 4 and 6 B.C., Uh, He was not born in year zero. Some think that. There's a year zero. There is no year zero on the calendar. Um, If he was born in that time, it would be 1 B.C. or 1 A.D. There's no zero in between, which is interesting enough. But why do we know it's between 4 and 6 B.C.? Because Herod. Herod died in 4 B.C. So Jesus was born during Herod's reign. So we kind of get an idea of when he was born. And um, so did they mess up the calendar or something? They do. We actually go off of the Gregorian calendar, which uh, was part of the, was a Roman priest, if I remember correctly, and he didn't take into account some different things. Like, for example, the Jewish calendar is 360 days, um, whereas a Roman calendar is 365 days, unless it's a leap year, then it's 366. And some of that started really with Julius Caesar in 40 BC. It's very interesting when you get into dates in history. And, but when we write down our date, we're right in the year of our Lord, 2000. 22. And we celebrate Christmas. So what makes Christmas so special? It's a time in which God split history with the event. And um, and when we ask ourselves what's so special about Christmas, I think Philippians chapter 2 answers it. We have here the greatest explanation in the Bible of who Jesus was and who he is. And what he came to do. This is the bedrock. This is the foundation of all that we believe. That Jesus is Lord. Here's point number one. Here's the relevance of Christmas. God came to earth. It says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God. Who being in the form of God. And the, and the New King James says. Did not consider it to be robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is God. God invaded the earth, and that is the relevance of Christmas. And there are people who would say that Jesus was, well, he was just a great man in history. Or that Jesus was just a great prophet in history. Here's the problem. Jesus never said he was a great prophet. He never said that he was just a good man. What he did say was this, I am God. And John 10 in John 10, where he says, I and my father are one, um, where he ended up saying in scripture that, that before Abraham was, I am. What is he saying? I am God. That's what he's saying. And in fact, the Pharisees there in John 10, it says, took up stones again. So not the first time he had said this to stone him. He's like, why are you going to stone me? It said, for good works, we're not going to stone you, but for blasphemy. In other words, we're trying to make yourself equal with God. We are. And he escaped into the crowd. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't, claim, uh, he didn't claim just to be a good man. He didn't claim just to be a good prophet. He claimed to be God. And so uh, 
it's important to realize Jesus didn't start. He didn't start in the stable. When did Jesus begin? Well, he's God. We believe in the Trinity. Trinity being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, we try to use things here on earth to explain the Trinity. But if you want your brain to hurt and give it a good spiritual exercise, just sit down and kind of read some theology books and try to think through and try to understand the Trinity completely. And you're going to study and you're going to study and you'll be challenged and you'll learn and you'll leave going, you know what? I don't understand the Trinity. My brain hurts. That's what you'll come to the conclusion of because we have a God we can't completely understand or grasp, but he has revealed himself to us. You see, Jesus has always been. We call this we call this the preeminence of Christ. He existed before creation. Now, the incarnate Christ, yes, happened in the manger. But what about the pre-incarnate Christ? Well, you can read in the Old Testament where we have samples, examples, and stories of the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God. You can read back when Daniel's three friends, Rashak, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown into the fire because they wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar looked and go, wait a second, I thought I only threw in three, and there's four. And one's like the, looks like God, the Son of God, pre-incarnate Christ. You have Abraham got... Had, a, had some visits from some angels, and one we believe to be the Son of God. You see, he existed before. He's always been. There are some who teach that Jesus Christ hasn't always been, that he, God the Father created him, and he had a clear beginning, but there is no clear beginning with Jesus. Why? He is God. Maybe your children have asked you, and I know my children have asked me, and I remember asking my parents, and maybe you even think this, and maybe you're wondering this right now. Well, when, when was God born? When did, when did he begin? There has to be some beginning with God. And the answer is no, there's, there's not. It's a simple uh, answer to an important question of when did God begin? He has no beginning. He has no end. And our finite minds can't comprehend that because everything we know has a beginning. It has an end. You know, crops grow, then they die in the fall, right? We are born and then we die. And we wonder, what about God? He's always always been. Some have tried to explain, like St. Patrick, the three-leaf clover explaining the Trinity and God. But when you really get looking at it, not even that really um, translates to the Trinity being taught correctly. Some will try to use, you know, a water with water being a vapor and being ice and being liquid. And, and it, but the more you look at it, you go, oh, that doesn't quite completely add up. And I'll say this, you have God the Father, you have God the Son. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Father. God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, but yet all three of them are God. Now you try to explain that one. And the deeper you get in, you go, wait a second, God is outside of our time and our space. And he's not subject to what we have here on earth. And so being in the form of God, then I consider it robber to be equal with God. Why? Because he is God. The reality of Christmas, God became man. This is even more difficult to understand. If you were God... And you were going to come to earth. You were going to come to earth, and you're going to come as a baby? Why come as a baby? Why come as a human being? 
And it says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of not just a person, but a servant, a, a slave, and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. The reality of Christmas is that Jesus was a real man, flesh, bones, hair. He was a real person, not a myth, not a fable, not just a nice story. He was real. And the reality is that God came to earth. God became man. Why in the world would he do such a thing? Well, if God wanted to communicate with a dog, he would have came a dog. If he wanted to communicate with birds, he would have became a bird. If he wanted to, but he wanted to communicate with us. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Keep your finger here in Philippians. In John 1, verse 1, we have a very important passage. And, um, and it simply says, I'll read out the NLT here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word already existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Capital G-O-D. In verse 14, so the Word became human. And made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory in the glory of the Father, one and only Son. Preacher, why is this so important? Why is this point? Because some will take verse 1 and read it, and, and read it like this. They'll change it. They'll change it. They'll say it, that the word was with God and the word was a God. Small G-O-D. That Jesus really wasn't. God. Yeah, he was a son of God, but he really wasn't God. And there are some cults, and there are some false teachings out there that some will teach he really just wasn't God. They'll say, well, in the Greek, there's no article. And you may not know what an article is in the Greek, and that's fine. And therefore, it should be a God. But when you go to John 20 and old doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas who hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus. When he saw Jesus, what did he do? He saw Jesus and he's like, oh, my Lord and my God, capital G-O-D. In the Jehovah Witness Bible, that's what they do. It actually says a God in John 1.1. What's so interesting is there's no article in the Greek either when Doubting Thomas said my Lord and my God, and yet in their own Bible, because they don't know Greek, and their translators didn't know Greek either, um, it says capital G-O-D. I showed a lady who was a Jehovah Witness once that, and she got mad and stomped out of my driveway. And one man who was with her, I said, he asked if they could ever come back. And I said, sure. I wasn't mean to him. You can come back anytime you want. She said, we're never coming back. Why was it? Because when you lay down a straight stick next to a crooked one, you either accept it or you reject it. What's the fact? Jesus is God. He is God. God in the flesh came among us. God became man, and he wants to communicate with you. Think about God, Jesus. He, he is, he, how, how is Jesus like us? Well, one, he was born like us. He made himself nothing. He came into the world like billions of other babies, but the whole history of the world rested on this little infant, and that must have blown the minds of the angels. I, I, I I doubt they ask in God any questions. They, they see God in all his holiness, right? But you can imagine the angels going, what is, what is, what is Jesus doing? Well, what is God doing? He's going to go and be born in a manger? 
and he's going to be born? Like, could, he could just go down. He's done it before in the Old Testament. Why is he, why is, why is he going that way? No flashly entrance to let the whole world know that he's come. He just comes in the middle of the night in a stable in Bethlehem. In fact, the manger itself was a sign. We saw last week when the angels showed up and there was a symphony and they're singing and the shepherds were there. And they're like, go to Bethlehem and you'll see them. In fact, here's a sign. You're going to find, you're going to find a mama. You're going to find a daddy and you're going to find a baby in a manger. Why was that a sign? Because babies normally are not born in a manger even back then. What is a manger? It's just a small barn. That's what it is. Small barn, the manger may have been part of a cave, yeah, whatever. But it's still just a smaller barn. You ever been in a barn? Some of you, I'm sure you have. Have you ever been in a barn where there's been animals? It stinks. It stinks. In fact, have you ever shoveled manure? I have. It's not a lot of fun. It's not a lot of fun. Especially when there's a good foot of it in there. And you're like, got a pitchfork and you're moving the manure, and the more you move it, the more it stinks, right? And if it's in the summertime, it's even worse. I mean, if it's in the, if it's like, well, do it, do it when it's cold. Well, then it's frozen. It's even worse, right? And then your brother goes to the bathroom and doesn't come back, and you're stuck out there doing it yourself. I had to learn that trick, right? He's younger than me. I guess smarter than me, too, in that, in that, uh, in that way. It, it's no fun. It was a sign. Here, the Son of God, 100% God, 100% man in human form. You try to think that through. How can someone be 100% God, 100% man? Yeah, we see here that that his, well, he was 100% God, 100% man, but yet he put aside his divine privileges while he was here, here on earth. He humbled himself. He didn't cease to be God, but he humbled himself. You see, he grew like us. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew and developed and had growth spurts. Can you imagine if you had gone to school with Jesus, getting all the questions right? If you went to school with Jesus, there was no grading on the curve because it was no problem for Jesus. He knew, right? He knew if you were trying to cheat off of him, right? You knew Jesus had the right answer. I'm sure none of you ever cheated, Right? Okay, we're in church. We're not going to admit to anything here this uh, this morning. All right. But he didn't parade and go around and act as he was God when he was young, but as he grew. He was a human being and grew like us. He looked every inch a carpenter. If you had seen Jesus before you knew he, who he was, you would have thought he looked just like everybody else. He didn't walk around with a halo above his head. He didn't walk around with a special glow. Like, oh, wait a second, something special about this one. No, he was like us. He was like you. But yet, 100% God. You see, he was tempted like us. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. Only one to never sin. He was born of a virgin. You can go deeper into the study, but there was a reason he had to be born of a virgin. Because God had a plan. Because he was born not to live forever in the flesh, but to go and to die on a cross for us, for our sin. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. He was tempted in the same way we are. He was tempted to lie. He was tempted to cheat. He was tempted to steal. He had the same drives, but he never gave in to them. And this is important because he can relate. He can relate to you. 
He can relate to me. He can relate in our struggles in which we have. Where do you struggle? Where do you struggle in? Maybe you're here this morning and you just don't feel worthy. Maybe you even feel dirty. You may even wonder to yourself, why would God even want me? Why would God love me? I know my faults. I know my mess ups. I know where I'm at. Why would he want to do, have anything to do with me? Because he's been in your shoes. He's tempted just like you, but yet he never gave in to sin. So in fact, he's been tempted even more. He didn't sin. Even when he was tempted by Satan himself for during that 40 days of fasting out in the wilderness, and he never sinned. Satan himself. Now, I think we get, as Christians, maybe you've been tempted by Satan himself, but I'd say probably most of us haven't. We've been tempted by his influence, maybe by his demons, and there's different ranks of demons, which are fallen angels and so on, and it gets very interesting. But I highly doubt any of us were tempted by Satan himself, and yet he was. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And because he knows what it's like to be tempted, he sympathizes with us. He loves us. He offers forgiveness. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're like, I just don't know if God would want anything to do with me. I'm just too dirty. I'm too tempted. And that's just a lie from the enemy. Because he really does love you. And that's the reality of Christmas. God became a man. You see, he suffered like us. He felt pain, disappointment. He got tired. He became fatigued. He even felt lonely at times. He grieved. He cried. He was human. In Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, he said, the sorrow is so great, it almost crushes me. He knew what it was like to feel pain. He can relate to your pain, your problems, and your pressures. He was God, but he became a man. And Jesus became what we are so we could become what he is. And that's the reality of Christmas. And that should bring you comfort. That should soothe your soul in knowing that you have a Savior who loves you, cares for you. Jesus was willing to listen to the authority that God had put over him. At the age of 30, why did he start his ministry at the age of 30? Age of 30 was a time in Jewish culture where you, could, um, you were considered a man of influence. You were considered a man at age, I believe it was 20, but you were just a young man, and, and you could become a priest at age 30, a high priest at the age of 33. So some of it was related to that. The reason for Christmas, Jesus came to die. Make no mistake, Christmas is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day, he's coming again. You probably see the Advent candles over here to my right. What is Advent about? It has nothing to do with really the birth of Christ. It has everything to remind Christians and believers Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. And I don't know when, but he's coming. And, you know, when it comes to prophecy or eschatology, sometimes different preachers have some different views. Even though I disagree with them, they, they mean well, right? Some are what we call their pre-trib, right? Christ is going to come before the tribulation and take his church out. Some are mid-trib. Some are post-trib. Some are just weird. I don't know what to say. But I'll say this. Regardless of what, how one views, we can agree upon this. Or you're just a heretic, right? Uh, we have to agree upon this. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And it reminds us of just that. But Jesus came to die. 
He came to die. And it says in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He knew. Jesus knew his reason for earth, for being on earth. He came to die. He was obedient to the Father's will. Now, Jesus, Jesus is our example. Sometimes I had someone ask me earlier this morning about what we are predestined to. And predestination, every time in Scripture, has to deal with the believer. And every believer is predestined to be like Jesus. And Jesus is our example. And we see that he was called to be obedient to death. What does God want you to be obedient to? He wants you to be obedient to him, to his word, and what he has clearly said. He's called us to be obedient. You see, Jesus didn't stay in the crib. In the manger, he went to the cross voluntarily, laid down his life. He could have called the 10,000 angels to rescue him. And so, um, but uh, he didn't. He willingly went voluntarily. No one took his life. He went voluntarily. So why did he allow himself to go to the cross? The Bible says he did it for two reasons. First is to demonstrate God's love. Romans 5, 8 says, God showed his great love For us, by sending Christ to die on the cross while we were still sinners. Some have in their mind that God is just an angry God that wants just to get us to a point where we'll cry uncle or tap out, so to speak, and give in to his mercy and forgiveness and grace. But here's the deal. is when God made everything that he made... The Bible says in Genesis that he sat back and he says, this is good. In other words, it is perfect. It is good. Adam and Eve were perfect. Perfect man. Perfect woman. He told them, don't touch these two trees. Don't eat at them. Don't eat off of them. Don't look at them. Leave them alone. You can eat everything else. It's all yours. The garden is yours. They had perfect communion with God. I mean, they had it going on. And they had it all. And you know the story. They sinned. When they sinned, death, disease, evil entered our world. And death was passed down from them to us. One way or another, we're all related to Adam and Eve. And our sin nature has been passed down. That's why you don't have to teach anyone how to sin. Some just get better at sinning. Does that mean that no one has the potential to do any good whatsoever? Well, no, that doesn't mean that. People do good all the time who are not Christians or even believe in God. Sure, they can do good. But at the end of the day, all truth is God's truth. And God has demonstrated his love and showed us Because every one of us, we are destined for hell. We are destined for punishment of our sin. We are born with a sin nature. We are born bent towards sin. That's why there's evil in the world. That's why there's children who are born with cancer that have done nothing wrong. Evil and wickedness and sin and disease. And I mean, bad things happen to good people because of sin. So why in Christ seeing this and knowing this, knowing what our future, knowing that something, someone had forgiveness had to be offered that, 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 salvation could be offered to every single person. Jesus was willing and made obedient to death. His motivation was love. 
And if you want to know how much God really loves you, all you need to do is look at the cross. And many will go, God, how dare you? In reality, they'll say, how dare you? Because they want to be their own God. And the idea of someone telling them how to live their life, telling them what to do, is just a grave offense to them. If your boat had crashed and you were out in the middle of the ocean, and you were treading water and you had nothing to hang on to, eventually you'd get dehydrated. Even if you were a good swimmer, maybe you'd go a bit longer, maybe you go a couple more hours than a normal person, eventually you will cramp up. Eventually you will run out of energy. Eventually you will sink. And Jesus, seeing our need, came to rescue us. He comes to rescue us. And you can accept or you can reject the salvation in which he brings. And some see the life vest. Some see the boat. Some see what he has thrown out to them and goes, How dare you try to save me? I will do things my own way. One day we are destined to die. The question is, will you die with Jesus or without him? The decision is yours. The other reason, it was to pay for our sins. You see, when you break a law, you've got to pay a penalty. When you break man's laws, you need to pay man's penalties. That may be a fine, that may be prison, depending on what you broke. There's a consequence to our sin. And when you break God's law, you pay God's penalties. And we've broken his law. Every one of us. Every one of us. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Notice what 1 Peter says. It says he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might be dead to sin and live for what is right. And by his wounds, we or you are healed. It seems that Peter is quoting Isaiah 53. And the angel said, for unto us, today, a Savior is born, which is Christ the Lord. What does it mean to be a Savior? Jesus came to be the Savior of the world as long as you think, okay, I'm not that bad. Um, I'm, I'm not a person really in danger. Or maybe when I'm older, or maybe when I've lived my life the way I've wanted to live my life, you know, I'll, I'll think a little more about Jesus. I'll think about maybe confessing my sins. And, and, and some in their minds think to themselves, well, I'm not really that bad. I really do not need any saving. But what's happening is they're just treading water. And they're just treading water. They don't know when that cramp's going to come. They don't know... They don't know when the end is going to be, when they simply cannot go any longer. You see, a lifeguard is taught that when you swim out to a person who is drowning, usually you will not grab them right away, or you have to grab them from behind or a certain way. But you tread water and wait. They, they are panicked, and if you grab them immediately, they might just grab you, pull you down, and drown you in the process. You've got to wait until they're exhausted. And when they've given up, you put, you, you go and, and you help them back to shore. As long as a person is trying to save themselves, you can't really save them. 
And there are many people who think to themselves, I'll just save myself. I'll just do good enough. I'll clean myself up enough that he will accept me and bring me in and let me come in. But that's not the way it works. You see, you must realize you need a Savior. If we were in a plane, we were in a plane and suddenly I became frightened, but nothing was wrong with the plane. And I grabbed the parachute and I threw it over to you. You'd look at me a little weird like, what are you doing that for? You might even ask me a question. Are you okay? Well, why are you so worried? But the plane started to have great turbulence and then suddenly an engine blew and there was smoke. And we started going, started going down. And I looked at you and I threw a, I said, parachute and I threw it to you. You would not ask me any questions. You would put it on and you would want to know, how are we getting out of this plane? That's the only question you're asking. Because you realize the plane is going down. And when you realize you need saving, that's why you need a savior. Have you gotten to that point? See, Jesus, he came to die because we need a Savior. The result of Christmas is this. Notice verse 9. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him a name above all names, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And notice, under the earth, everybody, all of creation, all of creation will recognize Jesus as Lord. Even those who deny him down here on earth, there is no second chance. This is not teaching a universal salvation for everybody, that everyone would just get a second chance. No, no, no. Whether here or there, everyone's going to recognize he is Lord. He is Lord. And we must not forget the importance of realizing Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus humbled himself, God has done a couple things. One, he has given him top place of honor in the universe. His, his name is honored above all else. He has given a new name. The name Jesus itself, during Jesus' day, when he lived here on earth, was not a very special name. In fact, they would have called him Yeshua, not Jesus. Jesus is an English thing. Yeshua. It was like calling someone John or Jim. It wasn't that special of a name. But he have a new name. And he's called different names throughout Scripture. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, Prince of Peace. What is a name that he has given that is a result of going to the cross for us? The name which he was given because he went to the cross obediently is Lord. Is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I think it's also misused, misunderstood. And used flippantly by people, even Christians. They don't understand the meaning of Lord. You see, Lord in the Greek means master, ruler, number one, Mr. Big, the one in control, totally sovereign and king. Over 600 times in the New Testament, the Bible calls Jesus Lord. You see, Lord in the New Testament times was a word in which they used for Caesar there in Rome. The Romans would say, Caesar is Lord. In fact, it became a test of loyalty in the Roman Empire. And if you were not willing to say, Caesar is Lord, they either killed you, they fed you to the lions in front, and they're in their Colosseum, or you fought a gladiator simply for not saying Caesar is Lord. And many Christians wouldn't say it. 
because their loyalty was to Jesus alone. No one else was going to be called Lord. That is a title that only he deserves to be called. Jesus is Lord. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means I acknowledge that he really is God. That he's more than just a man or a prophet. He really is God. He is Lord. It is a test, it is a test of my commitment to him. I believe that he is, has everything under control. And since Jesus is God, then God has everything under control. Jesus has everything under control. To say Jesus is Lord is a statement, a statement of comfort and also encouragement. And although there's times in life things can look bleak, the fact is Jesus is Lord. And he, he is in control. It also means I commit my life to him. He calls the shots because he is God. He has come to earth, died for me, and rose again. Because he has done those things, he has the right to determine what's right in my life and to direct me. And we live in a society today that just wants to make their own truth. But Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus has revealed himself through the word of God by becoming the flesh became, uh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He's revealed himself to us. He is Lord. He's the one who determines what truth is and how we should live accordingly. He's given that to us in his word. Don't use the word Lord lightly. And there are some watching and some right here right now. You claim Jesus as Lord and yet you use his name Jesus in vain. There's some that claim Jesus as Lord with your lips, but in your life you're living like the devil. There's some who claim Jesus as Lord, but you gossip about everyone who's around you. You claim Jesus is Lord, and yet you do not serve like Jesus came to serve. And my friend, if we're not serving, and we are never more like Jesus than when we serve, if we're not willing to serve, it's easy to look at someone in sin and go, oh, they're living in sin, they're doing this, this, and they might be living in sin, and you might be right. If we're not willing to serve and we claim Jesus as Lord of our life, to not serve is to live in sin. And so if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved. Is Jesus really Lord of your life? I'm not asking you, wow, I grew up in church. That's good. I'm glad you did. I did too. But is he really Lord of your life? I read the Bible here and there, and that's good. We all need to read the Bible, but is he really Lord of your life? I've been a member here for 20 years. It's good. It's part of what we should do. But is he really Lord of your life? The greatest need in American churches is the need to rediscover the phrase used for centuries as a test of a believer. Jesus is Lord. And it may look like the other side is winning at times, but Jesus is Lord. It may make you think that, you may think to yourself, I can't cope anymore. There's too much pressure, but Jesus is Lord. You may think your problems are too great and you can't handle them, but Jesus is Lord. Circumstances may pile up against you, 
And people may fight against you, but Jesus is Lord. You can say that phrase when you're discouraged. Jesus is Lord. When you're tired, when you're worried, when you're afraid, Jesus is Lord. Say it when you think you can't go another mile. Say it when you're grieving and when you don't know what to do when someone has died. Jesus is Lord. Say it when you're lonely. Say it at Christmas. Make it the theme of your life. That's what it means to a believer to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. Is he really Lord? Let's pray. Father, you love us so much, and you desire to be Lord of our life. I pray that those who know you, that confess to be believers, I pray that they're really living a life that shows that you are Lord, that you are Lord of them. For those who are watching or here, that maybe they've never made Jesus their Lord. They know all the right answers. They've been in church before, but They've never given their life to Jesus. They've never humbled themselves and confessed their sins. I want you to know that he loves you. He knows everything about you, everything you've thought, everything you've said, everything you've ever done. He wants to be Lord of your life. He won't force you, but he does offer it. If that's you, you can pray with me this morning. Pray, dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner who deserves hell. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, save me. Jesus, I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. If you prayed and accepted Christ this morning and you prayed in faith, say, Pastor Lucas, I'm giving my life to Christ this morning. Will you raise your hand high in the air? Raise it high in the air. I'm giving my life to Christ this morning. If you're watching, please message us and let us know. Say, Pastor Lucas, I know Christ, but I'm not living a life where Jesus is clearly Lord of my life. I'm following my own plan, my own way, but it's time for me to make a change. It's time for me to live a life as Jesus, as my master, as the one in control, as the one who is directing me. Pastor, I'm repenting of that. I'm making things right with the Lord here this morning during this time of reflection. Say, Pastor, that's me. We raise your hand. Show it to God. God, I'm focusing on making you the Lord of my life in every way. Amen. Amen. God, we love you. We're thankful for your goodness and for your grace and that you never give up on us that you're long suffering in times in which we stray you're there eagerly waiting for us to come back to you we love you we praise you and everyone said amen God bless you church